and action. Hello out there to all our 34 Circe podcast. And cut. <laughs> Hello out there to all our 34 Circe Salon podcast listeners. I'm Don Sam Alden. And I'm Sean Marlon Newcomb. Thank you so much for following this podcast and for your support for programs that explore the untold stories of female agency and adventure throughout history. This program is more than just something that we love doing, and we really deeply love it. It's also a mission for us. And we'd love for it to be a mission for you as well. So we've created an account on Patreon, a fundraising website, in order to help us fund the podcast and some other really great, really fun projects that we have planned. So if you're able, please go over to patreon.com slash 34 Circe and pledge your support. You can do a one-time donation or a monthly subscription. And any amount, even a dollar, helps fulfill the mission to help make matriarchy great again. So thank you for taking the time to listen to us in this exciting little commercial spot that we've given you. So <laughs> now on to the show. Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. So, welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. This is Make Matriarchy Great Again, and we are entering a age of bebop. We're going to be dealing with some poetry that is influenced by post-war American music, post-war American changes of notion, and what better way to start off than with a little jazzy piano? Exactly. I was going to read Howl. I was going to read Howl, but I didn't do it. But you know what? I will, I will stay one thing from Howl, which is I saw the best minds of my generation starving, hysterical, naked dragging themselves to the streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix. There we go. Blah, blah. Boys, boys, blah, blah. But we're Let's not talking about talk the boys, about right? the women. About, you got it. So where's the... There we go. <laughs> I am Sean Marlinukum, and that, of course, is... Don Sam Alden. Welcome, welcome. And we have a fantastic guest with us today, Kimberly, who is going to help us talk about the women beat poets there were women beat poets what what there were <laughs> what a surprise I, they've been erased like, from history yeah and i'd like to ask you too kimberly what as you start to go into your uh, uh we were talking about it from a musical standpoint as you start to play your song which is uh, just their role with the men because a lot of the stuff that i remember reading about the beat poets and it's not just that they've been erased from history, but they were erased by many of the men themselves, these the writers themselves, uh, in terms of their interaction and their appreciation, it seemed like. That is that is absolutely true. Some of them, you get brought out by name just to um, 
disavow them in interviews. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I mean, when I say erased, in some cases, they literally uh, erased <laughs> people. <laughs> you know erased what I'm talking about? With a pistol. Yeah. With a pistol. Yeah. Yeah. So well, please, Kimberly, let's. So yes, let's, jam. let's, uh, let's let Kimberly introduce the melody here and uh, and tell us a little bit about uh, her experience with uh, the research that she's done on beat poets, and then we'll start to riff on that. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. I love this topic. I love talking about it. Um, I have always been a huge Beat Era poetry fan. I love the language of it. I love, as Sean was talking about, the jazz elements of the way it's written. And of course, the majority of that that we have access to easily is about men. And it wasn't until I accidentally, in my research, landed on a book called Women of the Beat Generation, um, The Writers, Artists, and Muses at the Heart of a Revolution, written by Brenda Knight, that my eyes were open to the fact that this entire movement was rife with women. There were women involved in every aspect of what was going on from the late 40s all the way up through and into the hippie generation. and um, that became really important to me because I had always wondered how it was that this beat revolution of, of angry, young, disenfranchised men, of which they exist in every generation, but how is it that this particular movement ended up leading to the peace and love and age of Aquarius and flowers in your hair social revolution of the hippie movement? And even Jack Kerouac would say there is no difference between the beats and the hippies except for age, that it is the same movement, but it was such a radically different mindset because the more you study about the male um, beat poets and writers and the men who started this, the more you realize that they were very misogynistic and very hedonistic and, um, and very I, I just self, didn't... self-destructive and angry and, and you know, just in, yes. in tone, very dissimilar from the the sort of gentleness of the hippie movement that we, you know, that we think of when we think of the hippies. Well, exactly. Also, sorry, just to jump in with Jack Kerouac and Dawn, I, I joke with Dawn about this is Jack Kerouac gave an interview towards the end of his life where he disavowed all that connection to the hippies uh, for himself personally. And he would say, I'm, I'm not like them. I was a merchant Marine. I've, I've led a different kind of life than these, essentially than these punk kids. You know, so it's it was really fascinating. So as you talk about it, you know, it leads to this movement, but it also that, like Dawn was saying, this sort of misogyny, this different patriarchal mindset kind of seemed to, for in some cases, Ginsburg certainly embraced the hippies, but Kerouac kind of seemed to have moved away from them, you know? He did, as did Gary Corso. And I think I saw the same interview you were talking about. It was actually just a few months before his death. And he mm-hmm. painted himself as a a member of the status quo, which was so hilariously, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. contradictory it was, it was to amazing. who yeah. he had been. But by that point, he was a pretty severe alcoholic. Um, he probably was suffering a lot of mental issues as well as physical issues in his life. But yeah, he was, he was a character and there. There's a great documentary that was made in the late eighties called what happened to Kerouac. If I have the name right, that is wonderful to watch. If you get a oh, chance. Oh wow! What happened it, to Kerouac? 
Yeah, it's on. Um, it's on one of the streaming services for free, and all it is is a bunch of interviews of people who knew him, including recordings of interviews with him. And Ginsburg is in it, and Gary Corso's in it, and the women that were in his life are in it. And it's that's just them talking. So if you if you're interested in that, that's a one worth watching. Absolutely. Um, and. And uh, so I, I love that. I rewatched that actually just a week or so ago in anticipation of talking to you guys just to get my mind back into that era. Nice, nice. So <laughs> tell us more about your this book and the women and all that sort of thing. Well, in this book, she goes, she doesn't just talk about the female writers. She also talks about women she calls the muses who were the women who were influential in the lives of these men from a very young age. And actually, I'd like to start talking about some of these women because I believe firmly in my heart that without these women, there would have been no hippie generation. It would not have been the same at all. There were sparks that they ignited early on in the lives of these men that changed the direction of where a lot of things went and maybe even where the world went today. Um, so I should probably start with one who is the biggest mystery woman. Um, they call her the Beats, gen- the Beat Generation's missing woman. Her name was Hope Savage. And there is very little factually to be found about her, but a lot anecdotally. She shows up in conversations, in letters, in people's journal entries, in memoirs. Um, her name was Hope Savage. The only thing I can tell you for 100% sure was that she was born in South Carolina, that her father was a mayor of a town there. I can't remember which town it was. And that when she was about 17 years old, uh, she ran off to New York City to live a life of sin and depravity. Um, and nice, we, we nice. were talking about how women get erased. The way that they love to erase women back in that era was if a woman was outspoken or had her own things to say or was sexually what they called promiscuous, she would end up institutionalized. And apparently this happened to Hope on a number of occasions, and she was theoretically subjected to electric shock therapy. Um But when she was about 17 years old, she hooked up with Gary Corso, who um, was about 19 at the time. He was the youngest of the guys hanging out with Kerouac and Ginsburg, and they were hanging out on street corners with Herbert Hunky, who was just a street hustler and a terrible human being in a lot of ways. But what Hope did that I think set the first domino in, in place that would change the world was that. 20 years before it became very fashionable to be into Eastern mysticism, she was very interested in that topic. And she taught um, these guys about uh, meditation mantras. She introduced them to Tang Dynasty poetry like Zhang Ji and Li Po. And apparently both Ginsburg and um, Kerouac were fascinated and studied these poets. And you can see the influence of the, that thinking in the way their writing evolved over time. Kimberly, so she was the uh, one who. This, this yeah. is Hope Savage. So this is Hope Savage. You're saying, this, right? This is Hope Savage. Wow. Let's keep her name. Let's let's make sure that her name is known. And how do we know this? How do you know that the, that she the, was the the voice that brought this about? 
The first time I ran into Hope was actually in that documentary. Um, Gary Corso brought her name up just by her first name, just the name Hope. And so I started doing some research on her and um, I went down the rabbit hole as much as I could. And it's difficult because she's really become a mythology and a legend. She um, ended up moving to India. And then she, and everything I know is anecdotal. It's from people's stories, from people's journal entries, from letters people wrote. Gary Corso wrote about her to Allen Ginsberg. He was madly in love with her throughout his life. That was the great love of his life. Um, she apparently got kicked out of India for immorality. And I'm not, and there's no background as to what that was about. But if India kicks you out of immorality in the early sixties, wow, you, you were living quite a life. Um, there are notes of her afterwards showing up in Beirut, Lebanon, and, and maybe at that time she had, in the early 70s, she had two small children with her. Um, those children get brought up in later letters. She's was running around Iran, Pakistan, Nepal. Um, there are legends of her in Thailand, or people finding meeting her on a stream in China or Nepal, gathering water with a bucket, tell, you know, being told that her name is Hope Savage, hearing legends about this crazy white woman passing through villages. Um, but after that, she kind of disappears. And it is my great life goal to try to hunt down what the heck happened to Hope Savage. Um, she very well. I, I want to join you on that hunt. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. That's she's an, amazing an interesting story. woman. She, If she's alive, she's in her 80s. If those children are alive, they'd be in their 40s now. So there is somebody out there on the planet who knows what happened. I know she did hook up with Allen Ginsberg in um, in India for a while, but. I do not know. How, this woman's story is fascinating. And if I can't find the truth of it, I'll write a fiction of it because she's amazing. Well, I wonder if um, I, I would I would doubt very much that Hope Savage is her real name. So I wonder well, if, if we can if we can you know, <coughs> if her real name could be discovered, if that would help. To, uh, to I research. was able to verify that her father's last name was Savage. He's Henry Savage Jr. So really? Savage is actually her last name. That's so fascinating. I'm, Hope may not be her first name, but I, I assume if I start getting into genealogy records, and I have not delved that deeply into it, I was too fascinated with the anecdotes and stories, but um, we might be able to find out through birth records what her actual first name is. But I'm just assuming at this point that she is Hope Savage. And it, it was the name she carried with her. All The last I have heard of her is in the se 1970s, or the last stories I heard about her. Um, I'm not sure. I think she was born in the early 30s. So, yeah, so she would be in her 80s now, yeah. late 80s. Interesting. <laughs> so yeah. she's, she's quite a woman. But I believe that her influence, and Gary Corso called her a teacher, um, he felt like she was very influential in teaching them about things that they had never heard of and ideas and concepts and philosophies that they had never been exposed to before. And we know from more recent history that those philosophies and those teachings became very, very influential in where we went in the social revolution in the 60s. So if she was the first to kind of introduce that to these leaders of the beat movement, she was a profound influence on the future. Absolutely. It's incredible. I mean, the, again, it's an example of what you know, we talked about and we were saying at the very beginning of just women being erased. And this is an amazing exciting character and it also makes me think of you know just from a creative standpoint the kinds of characters we see on television 
I mean, here are some really interesting women. And perhaps if people knew stories like these, we could have more fully fleshed out and interesting female characters in film and in television and entertainment now, just off on the side. So Hope Savage is is this um, wellspring, also, for, yeah, it sounds I, like, right? I'm, I'm going to jump in here too, Sean, and just, uh, you know, put in a stray thought, which is that uh, it really says something about the ego and narcissism of the, of the beat poets that, you know, this woman basically introduced them to the, to the ethos that they pursued for their careers and they don't, they give her absolutely zero credit for it clearly. So, but, but isn't, no, that the, isn't that the case with all in our culture we see in American life, this patriarchy happens with race and gender. It's like, you'll discover a certain form of music played by, you know, maybe African-Americans in the South, and then there's no recognition of the credit right. that that yeah, came right. from that. So it's just, I think it's just, a, it's a, a disease. It's a, it's a symptom of the, the patriarchal disease. Yeah. 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 And, in, and in fact, most records of her, when you're looking at um, these people remembering her, a lot of men love to claim to have been her lover, which seems to be the biggest value that they put in her. That wow. you know, kind of landing Hope Savage was a great notch in a belt buckle or whatever. I don't know what men put notches in, but <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't have we don't quite have the the uh the gun holsters anymore, but whatever it is, it's something. So yeah, so that seems to be her value. That Gary Corso, who if you've ever watched interviews with him, he is not one of my favorite people. He's uh, <laughs> on the planet. That's a whole other story. Can, but I, it, can it, I ask you about that though? Because it's interesting. Because I, when you know, we talked uh, just before, we we both have a love of beat poets, and I get that same impression with a lot of these guys too. That they're not, they don't all seem to have been the most honorable of men. You know, some seem to have a, a real caring sense, but there's a lot of disreputable behavior. With there, there definitely is. And and when I get to my next muse, we're really going to kind of land okay. land in the mud of some of that. With Gary Corso, I it's just from what I have seen of him in interviews and what I've read of him, not from his works, but just from himself, that he he was younger than these guys by a few years. And I think I get a sense of great insecurity. And he's one of the people who feels that the beat movement was a very isolated movement, that anyone who came after that early 50s period doesn't really count, and that he was one of the originals and they're the only ones that matter. And so you and he tends to overplay his role in the relationships with Ger with uh, Kerouac and with Ginsburg and and with the rest. And, and you just kind of, I just get one of that creepy sense from him. So I, I can't really, obviously never met the man myself. So my judgments are all based on, you know, third hand so, right. experiences. So he's, let's just say he's compensating and then let's move on to more women. That's that <laughs> is excellent. There you go. The, the second muse I want to talk about is the one who's actually probably the most famous and still well known, but probably for some of the wrong reasons. And that is a woman by the name of Joan Vollmer, V-O-L-L-M-E-R. She was the common law wife of William S. Burroughs. And those who know Burroughs know that he was very openly gay. So it was a very interesting relationship. Um, uh, she was a fascinating girl, also raised in great privilege in upstate New York and did the same thing as Hope. She fought against the constraints of that age. She was not going to be married off to what her parents wanted to marry off. So she married a man who 
her parents objected to and ran off to New York City. And then whoever that husband was kind of disappears into infamy. She ended up living in a series of apartments with friends. And she became the original great hostess of a lot of the beat um, writers and intellectual, you know, Illuminati of the age. She basically held these salons that would go on for days. People would kind of move in and crash at her apartment for a long period of time. Apparently she was very dynamic and very intelligent and very well read and could lead these fascinating conversations. So when we hear these stories of these men and their you know, long nights talking, we often don't hear that Joan Vollmer was the one who had put it together and was participating. And it was uh, through them that she met William Burroughs, who was a, he was the heir to the Burroughs adding machine fortune. And he had graduated Harvard way back in 36. He was about 10 years older than the rest of the crowd. Um, but he never really worked. He was living on a stipend and he fell madly in love with Joan Fulmer. He found her scintillating and exciting. But when he entered into that crowd, he brought with him a lot of very unsavory characters and drug dealers and hangers on and scam artists. And they ended up becoming part of that circle. And this is the period of time when Burroughs became a heroin addict. And unfortunately for Joan, she also got heavily into drugs, particularly speed. And she ended up in Bellevue Hospital. And he was able to use his money to get her out uh, they ended up having a child together, and at that point, he decided they were going to move to Mexico and start a marijuana farm, and that might have actually worked out for them, except that some of the hangers-on, particularly Hunky, came with them, and so they were always one step ahead of the law and always getting into trouble, and they moved around quite a bit, and drugs were still the center of their life. They ended up moving to Mexico, which at that time was kind of the land of milk and honey for people wanting to live an alternative lifestyle. You could get away with anything there. And apparently in the middle of one of the drug-fueled parties, they decided to play William Tell. And Joan placed an apple on her head. And then quite oddly, it said she turned her head away and closed her eyes because she couldn't stand the sight of blood, which makes me think she sensed what was coming. And from six feet away, Burroughs held up a gun to shoot the apple off her head and killed her instantly. He suffered almost no consequences from that. A few weeks in jail, I think it was just declared an accident. And interestingly, prior to that, he was not a writer. He said that it was her death that inspired him. She became his muse in death. And he did write some amazing novels that have become part of the the great lexicon of American history. But it was because of her death. And all I can think of is what Joan might have contributed had she never met William Burroughs because she had yeah. a lot more to offer than being his drug partner and dying at his hand. I, I find her a very interesting woman. I hate that she's famous for being killed by him because there was so much more to her. And, uh, and she really was the one who kind of brought these guys together, who hosted them, who got these conversations going. So she was a pretty amazing woman. It's it's uh, I always found the story of her death so horrifying and so just illustrative of just how guys can get away with anything in this culture if you got you're in a place of privilege. I mean he he killed his wife and it was just like okay and he's and it still gets to be celebrated thereafter. Right. I mean it's just I I find it's 
just so dreadful and, on so many different levels. And we only have, you know, the survivor's account of it because she was yes. killed. We never get to hear her side of the story. You know, did she just go along with this and be like, yeah, sure, take a pot shot at me? You know, uh, exactly. Or, I've often wondered about that because I've yeah. heard there are conflicting stories of what actually happened. Um, and so who knows what the truth is about how she really died and why. I mean, he was a heroin addict. So Lord only knows what was going on. And Sean, you might be interested. I, I read that Ginsburg Howell was inspired by a dream he had about Joan, that that was that was what inspired him to start that work, or at least parts of it, because, you know, the second half is obviously inspired by his time in a mental hospital. But I, I don't know if that's true. It's just something I read, but I thought it was quite interesting. Well, the poem absolutely has a, a, a completely dreamlike quality, like this lucid dream almost. So I could see that. And if so, you've got this this spirit who has inspired a lot of the great works of the beat poetry. But like you say, it's the the sad aspect of it, and for many women throughout history, that we know them in relation to something negative that happened or in their absence, and it's just and their you know, stories hear, are and yeah. their stories are told by the men in their lives yes. rather than right. you know actually getting to hear it from their own mouths. Yeah, that is absolutely true. There's I that is absolutely true. Yeah, the thing with Burroughs too, I always thought I just again I always thought about the fact that this particular incident happened and it seemed like there was no price to pay for him. And it just, I can't imagine the roles being reversed and that she would have been a celebrated, she would have been, she would have been, you know, this excoriated, uh, ostracized person if she had shot her husband by accident, you know, yeah, imagine yes. that story. Yeah. Imagine the, that. The shame and scandal would have followed her for the rest of her life. Yeah. Absolutely. The, the day she died. Exactly. She yeah. wouldn't be doing, I think I remember Burroughs doing commercials, if I'm not mistaken, in the 90s. It's sort of, it's like, Oh, okay. good Lord. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, because he was adopted not just by the, the, the hippie movements, the beats, but I believe that he had a really a renaissance during the grunge era. Uh, and I'll have to, I'll go check and look at that. But there was a lot of stuff. I remember Burroughs becoming very popular again in the 90s. Yeah, Naked Lunch suddenly started selling a lot again in the 90s, which was really odd. Yeah, for some reason. And I started to see him on, I believe, on a commercial or two. So just the fact that, yeah, I don't think if he had been the one shot and Joan had lived, she'd have been doing commercials in the 90s. Just saying. And and in my opinion, he ruined her life long before he shot her. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, It was the worst, the worst thing that ever happened to Joan was meeting him. It breaks my heart. And yeah, it breaks my heart that he's a hero. It's bra it breaks my heart that he's considered a literary hero and a literary genius. And and mostly he's a drug addict who killed his wife, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So who else? Well, I wanted to move um, from the muses at this point to some to um, I have three of the writers I'd love to talk to you about. Um, the interesting women. And at one point or another, I have developed a huge crush on each of these women for various reasons. Sometimes it's because of their writing. Sometimes it's because of the lives they lived or experiences they had. And I find them very fascinating. And, and I know, uh, Don, you've heard me talk about them before. So hopefully I'll have some new information to make them interesting. 
Um, the first I want to talk about is uh, Sister Mary Norbert Corte. Um, she was born in 1934. She grew up near Oakland and Berkeley, kind of east of the San Francisco Bay Area. She was uh, Mary Corte. And uh, right out of high school, she joined a convent and became Sister Mary Norbert. And for her luck and the luck of all of us who get an opportunity to read her, she joined a Jesuit convent. And Jesuits are very into education, so they immediately sent her to college all the way through to getting a master's degree. But, um, and during that time, she developed a passion for poetry and social activism. And that doesn't always fit really well into a lifestyle in a convent. And when you're married to Jesus, you know, the marriage kind of fell apart after that. But um, I have two, I have two books. I have two books of her poetry, one which was published while she was still Sister Mary Norbert, and one that was published later when she became Mary Corte. They're they're hard to find. I was very lucky to find them in a used bookstore. They're obviously, you know, short public, you know, short run publishing. Um, wonderful stuff. She's quite interesting. But um, one of her poems, which I absolutely love that she wrote while she was still a nun, um, came when she went to attend a poetry conference at UC Berkeley. Apparently, the convent cook was really nervous about the sister going off to a poetry convent with all these you know, degenerate poems, poets. And she actually had a dream that Mary was going to run off with Allen Ginsberg, and, which is hilarious because Allen Ginsberg was gay. But she was just this dream she thought was prophetic. And so um, Mary actually wrote a poem called Eddie May the Cook Dreamed Sister Mary Ran Off with Allen Ginsberg. Oh my and God, that's great. <laughs> if you're interested, I would, I can read it yeah, for you now. If you're interested in yes, it. Yes, the halls, dark, long, hard enough to have survived the 06 quake where survival was measured by the sound of Mother Superior's rosary beads. She dreamed, the cooks dreamed, the other nuns dreamed, impossible dreams of silver, visions, pelagic noises going in the growing night. Dreaming was a mission she could not renounce. Night as a place to see all freedoms looming ahead like sweet dragon-like, a cross with its circling tail. She ran away in everybody's dreams, calling out like a booming flame, running, running into the lines of bards and lions, lovers and birds, running with her arms out wide into the bright flapping dark. So I, I love that piece. I think it's oh, interesting. Gorgeous. Yeah. It's fun. You see a great um, evolution in her writing from the time that she was in until afterwards. When she left the convent, she went and became for a while a secretary at UC Berkeley. And then she moved out to the Mendocino area and became a caretaker for a huge piece of land. And she became kind of the mother of the Redwoods. And she was, um, she was very uh, into the, saving the redwoods movement and my husband actually got to meet her without knowing who she was or why she was so important but he used to be a member of the sierra club and so he remembers uh, during a trip to mendocino getting to meet this woman who was this old lady who was had been fighting for the redwoods her whole life and that was mary um mary corte oh my god um, so that's kind of fun she is just a fascinating woman um and she's still with us, right? She's she just is a, still yeah. alive. Of all the people I have to talk about, she is actually still alive. And I love that. And you can periodically find um, interviews with people who have hunted her down. And she seems very open to talking about her life. 
Um, I have one more poem of hers I'd love to share that she wrote many years later. It's called Turning 40 in Willets. And I can't describe specifically why I like this poem. And it, it's, it doesn't have quite the same cadence as some of the beat poetry. It doesn't have that jazz cadence, but it does still have that great imagination and, and analogy of language um, that's fun to kind of explore. And there's something about it that really pulls at me. So if I can share that one yeah, with you, it's called, called Turning 40 in Willets. <clears throat> you could see the path, the wild oats disturbed with her dying. She slid relaxed into the sun, her ears moving through the wind. We thought it was a long path she slid down the hillside. Somebody hit her with a 22 and she ran away to die. You run away to the city to get a boat. Why did you leave the Midwest? Too many friends, he said. He came to California. And the man who has too many friends in California runs to the sea or the city. It's all mixed up in who dies running and who dies down a long slope of peach grass with the fledgling hawk wheeling and complaining with the wind, twining wild oats around your still, still ears. This year will be the winter, spring, the summer of our discontent, the fall having shown its colors, poisoned, overfed, bloated with names, oriented strand bards, late serral stage heartwood, 5,000-year-old redwood rhizomes ground down to the disposable diapers, managed forest clear, cut to infinity well, infinity is her, dig it. So that was, I, I just like that one. And, wow. and you, you get her love. <laughs> she's amazing. Well, what's the last line again? Infinity. Um, cut to the, uh, she's talking about the redwood forest. And she says 5,000 year old redwood rhizomes ground down to the disposable diapers, managed forest clear, cut to infinity. Well, infinity is her, dig it. It kind of ends grammatically dig oddly. Dig yeah. it. Dig it. Dig it. Thought, yeah, really. I like that. I, like I love that one. Wow. So, and she is still alive today. And when you look at the writers <clears throat> that I'm talking about, I love that they all kind of got to live to their old age, to their crone years, where a lot of their their male compatriots died of drug problems and other issues much, much younger. So the women, the women got to take their influence into the future, not just through the hippie generation, but much, much later, and and keep their influence going in our world. So. I, Dawn, is, I, is, this, is this someone we should uh, track down, Dawn? What do you think? Uh, you know, if she talked to us, that would be pretty amazing. Would be oh, great. it would be. Kimberly, yeah. would, would, you, would you join in with us if we could find her? I would. I would mostly just sit here in awe the entire time, but I would love to. <laughs> okay. So who 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 are the the others that you, you the discovered? the next woman I want to talk about is a woman by the name of Joanne Kiger who was just a beautiful woman. Um, she was uh, born in Santa Barbara and she looks exactly like a Santa Barbara girl with the blonde hair and just really really lovely. She moved to San Francisco right in the middle of the Ginsburg Hall obscenity trial. And Sean, I know you're very familiar with that, but for anyone who is not, that is a story worth reading. Um, Howell was published by City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, and they got put on trial for um, obscenity charges. And the story of that um, that case is really fascinating, and it changed publishing for a long time, and much in the way that um, 
Oh, and of course, now my mind's going to go blank. Ulysses James Joyce and that obscenity trial did a lot to change publishing. The Howl obscenity trial did the same. Um, there's a movie actually they made that in, that features the poem and it features the trial, but sadly, it's starring. Um, Oh, right. my mind is not James Franco. James, James Franco, Franco. Which, which can be problematic for a lot of people, but it is oh, an excellent yes. movie. <laughs> it's yes. an excellent movie, and it, it you know causes us to always have to question that line about the art versus the artist. But yeah, but um, it is it's a, a topic worth studying. <laughs> As I mentioned to you, I got to hear Ginsburg read. I realized just before he died, probably about a year or two before he died. So I did get to hear him read. He didn't read Howell. Uh, he, I guess for him, that would be like doing greatest hits. And I don't think he would do that. <laughs> Play Freebird! Play Freebird! <laughs> exactly. But it, it, was, it was fascinating to hear. So, so Joanne Kiger, you were saying. <clears throat> so, yes, she, um, she, when she moved to San Francisco, she ended up living in a communal living project of, of Buddhist ones studying under Zen masters. And again, this is the late 50s. So it's long before this became a very popular movement. Um, or, you know, but so she was definitely a very devout Buddhist, um, very into that. She got married in 1960 to a man named Gary Snyder and she moved to Japan and they traveled to China and to Vietnam and to Tibet and to India. And in India, they hooked up with Allen Ginsberg and Peter Orlovsky. And um, in 1962, they got to meet the Dalai Lama when he was only 27 years old. Oh, wow. And to me, it's shocking enough to think of the Dalai Lama as being 27 ever, but to think of him hanging out and talking with beat poets just blows my mind. Yeah. Um, she, she published this great journal called Japan and India Journals, 1960 to 1964, and she tells this great little um, anecdote about that meeting. And uh, so I, I'm just going to read a small passage of that for you because it's kind of fun in her her descriptions of Allen Ginsberg are a lot different than we normally hear. She says, we met the Dalai Lama last week, right after he had been talking with the king of Sikkim, the one who was going to marry an American college girl. The doll is 27 and lounged on a velvet couch like a gawky adolescent in red robes. I was trying very hard to say witty things to him through the interpreter, but Allen Ginsberg kept hogging the conversation by describing his experiments on drugs until Gary said, really, Alan, the inside of your mind is just as boring and just the same as everyone else's. That little trauma was eased over by Gary and the Dalai talking guru to guru like about which positions to take when doing meditation and how to breathe and what to do with your hands. Yes, Yes, that's right, says the Dalai Lama. And then Allen Ginsberg says to him, how many hours do you meditate a day? And he says, me? Why, I never meditate. I don't have to. Then Ginsberg is very happy because he wants to get instantly enlightened and can't stand sitting down or discipline of the body. He came to India to find a spiritual teacher, but I think he actually believes he knows it all, but just wishes he felt better about it. Oh, wow. Snap, as the kids used to say. <laughs> I laughed so hard when I read that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. He thinks he knows it all already. Yep, yep. He just wants to feel better about it. 
Yeah. So yeah. And I just I visualize that conversation in my head with the you know the Dalai Lama that we all know just lounging on a couch, twenty seven years old, hanging out with the beat poets. Right. Right. <laughs> and Ginsburg trying to you know try dominating the conversation, <laughs> making, making it all about himself. I love it. I love it. <laughs> So it, anyway, Joanne was kind of living outside the box before the world knew there was a box and that it had boundaries or that there was anything outside of it. So she she just lived a wonderful life, a very fascinating life. And and the, again, I'll, I'll give you the name of her journal, the Japan and India Journals, 1960 to 1964. It's a fascinating read, um, nice. all of their adventures and everyone they ran into. Ginsburg ran into Hope Savage in, I think, Calcutta. And I am wondering if, if uh, there's a possibility that Joanne Kiger might, or Joan Kiger might have uh, run into Hope as well. But I don't, I don't know for sure. I would love yeah. to know. If so, she um, didn't I, write about it, it sounds like. If she did, I, I read, uh, I read that before I knew about Hope Savage. So it's possible she's in there. And I just oh, okay. blew over it because I didn't. Right. I didn't know about Hope at that time. I did cho choose a poem of hers, and I chose it in honor of your podcast because it is very aptly titled "The Pigs for Circe in May." Oh, oh my God! Wow. Let's, <laughs> Let's yeah. hear it. Yeah. Now, it, I am warning you in advance. It is the oddest little poem I have read, and it's kind of hilarious, but but it is fun. Um, start. I almost ruined the stew. And where is my peanut butter sandwich? I tore through the back of the car. I could not believe there was one slice of my favorite brown bread and my stomach. And I jammed the tinfoil and bread wrappers into the stew and no cheese. And I simply could not believe. And you never talk when my friends are over. This is known as camping in Yosemite. Already I wish there was something done. Odysseus found a stag on his way to the ship. I think of people sighing over poetry, using it. I don't know what it's for. Well, Hermes forewarned him. Can you imagine those lovely beasts all tame and prancing around him? She made a lot of pigs too. I like pigs. Cute feet cute nose, and I think some spiritual value investing them, a man and his pig together, rebalancing the pure in them, under each other's arms, bathing, eating it. <laughs> That's it. It's kind of an odd poem, but it's an interesting one. Yeah, I, have, I, I like love that it. poem, and I have my own little interpretations. But don't, we'll talk about that off here. Uh, okay. <laughs> what is yeah. it called again? What's what's the name of the poem again? The name of the poem. Let me scroll up. Here is the pigs for Circe in May. The pigs, pigs for, for Circe, Circe in, in May. May. I'm going to look that one up and read it about a thousand yeah. times. Yeah, yeah. It is. Really, There's I think a it's lot great. in there. There yes. is a lot in there. Yeah, definitely. definitely. It's hard to unpack. So she actually just died a few years ago in 2017. Um, but we do have her legacy of poetry. And unlike some of the other women, there's a lot of hers you can find on the internet at various poetry sites. So um, kind of look her up and, and read some of what she's written. She's an interesting, interesting woman. Nice. <clears throat> so I, I saved my favorite for last. Yay. Uh, my the, my goddess is uh, a woman by the name of Diane De Prima, 
And she was actually a bit more well-known. You can find yes. a lot about her um, all over the internet. And among that very male-dominated um, field, she was actually fairly prominent. In fact, her first collection of poetry was published around the same time Kerouac published On the Road. So she is not a latecomer or a hanger-on, although I have heard her actually discounted as not being part of the beat because she was a woman and women can't be part of the beat because... Gary Corso again talking about her um, but she is an amazing writer and it was an amazing amazing woman um, and she was hanging out with those guys she she lived in New York when they were still in New York before they all head west <clears throat> and actually it was Lawrence Ferlinghetti that wrote the introduction to her first uh, collection of poetry so she at the time was one of them hung with them and was accepted by them and and she was also kind of a quirky character she had this habit of summoning the spirit of John Keats through this psychic visioning. Oh, and wow. um, she, she would seek his counsel on various subjects in her life. So I think it was in 1957 when she was thinking about having a baby, she was 23. She contacted Keats to get his guidance on whether or not she should have a child. And she was quite horrified. She wrote in her journal that he felt that her having a child would be a betrayal of her commitment to poetry and she wrote that he said you have said nothing will be as important to you as poetry and yet now you plan to have a child a child who will certainly come first in your heart so she told Keats that although she was aware of the risks to her craft and that came with having a baby she needed to find out for herself what it was like to be a mother and a poet and to have that largeness of heart and she wow. gave birth to her first daughter, Jean, later that year, and she wrote prolifically the whole time. And what I love about that story is that even in her spiritual fantasies, she's arguing with a man and not following his advice and telling him to F off. So I, I, I just love that. <laughs> I, love I love that about her. So after that, she went and she joined Timothy Leary's in, um, intentional community in upstate New York, and she lived there for a while. And then in the late 60s, around the time of the Summer of Love, she moved to San Francisco, where the rest of them already were. And from like 1974 to 1997, she was teaching poetry at the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics, which oh has to be God. the greatest name for a school ever in the history of time. <laughs> Of disembodied poets, <laughs> poetics, even poetics. Okay, yeah. okay, there we yeah, go. Yeah, she's on. She was she was an activist, also as was everyone in that age, and she was a spiritual seeker and a constant self educator. And she studied Buddhism. She studied Sanskrit language. She studied Gnosticism. She was interested in alchemy. Um, but to me. She is the great goddess earth mother of the beat generation. Yeah. She, she's yeah. the spirit animal of that time. She's the Ursula and the stuff she wrote speaks to me the most. I, her poetry fascinates me. There's like a mix of stream of consciousness in there, but there's also a lot of structure, which is kind of diametrically opposed, but she makes it work and it just makes me tingle. And she did write two books, memoir books, if you're interested. <clears throat> One is called Memoirs of a Beatnik. And one is called Recollections of My Life as a Woman, the New York Years. And you get so you can really learn a lot about her in her own words through those nice. books. That's wonderful. Good, good. <clears throat> she is very worth knowing. And she just passed away late last year. She was oh, 86 wow. years old. 
breaks my heart. It didn't make the news. It should have made the news. Good she Lord, was yeah. every yeah. bit as important as anyone else of that era. Yeah. And yet she was neglected, completely neglected by history. And um, she's so. the one that wrote Lobos, right? She is the one who wrote Loba. She, yeah. now she was publishing as late, you know, as early as the 1950s. Loba didn't get published until the late seventies, but it is something she had been working on her whole life. It is, a, it's a feminist anthem of poetry and you can look at it either as a collection of poems or a longer work in many parts. It's a pretty thick book. Um, I've seen it described in a lot of ways. It came out 20 years after Howl, but people call it the feminist response to Ginsburg's work. And there's some great quotes that analysts have written about it. I, I love these. Um, it's been called a visionary epic quest for the reintegration of the feminist. And it's uh, that it explores the wilderness at the heart of experience through the archetype of the wolf goddess, elemental symbol of complete self-acceptance. And, you know, obviously greater scholars than I am have analyzed the hell out of it. But to me, I, you know, I just love poetry. I pay my dollar. I take my ride. So yeah. all I know is I feel the pull in my girly bits when I read her words. The depth of her mind is just astounding you can feel it in the air when you read her mm. um the opening work to loba is a poem called the ave uh, it's like a gut punch uh, the author herself described it it's kind of odd how she worded it but i wanted to quote her exactly she said it is an ode to the women of the street all over the world it's a sense of myself as stray woman with baby wandering over the globe kind of poem but to me, and since we're readers, we get to define things. It's just a cry to all women, all the women who ever are, were and who are and whoever might be. And it evokes a great sense of the sacred feminism. Feminine. I would like to read it to you. It's a little bit on the longer side. Um, and for people who aren't great poem lovers or readers or analyzers, I just hope they can glide along the surface of her words and let the sounds of the words pull on your spirit. It's really quite beautiful. If <clears> you <throat> so can, yes, if you can, yes. um, uh, not you, but speaking to our readers, if you can uh, find a copy of it so that you can see how it sits on the page. Yes. Because, because that is really part of, the experience of reading it is the way that she has arranged it on the page. So you are right. Her, her yeah. poetry is very visual. You can, yeah. it, it, the arrangement of the words is really lovely. Um, and her book, you can buy it in paperback off uh, um, Amazon now. So Loba is still pretty readily available. And I encourage people just to have it on their coffee table to pick up once in a while. You don't have to read it in order, but just enjoy her work. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah. I'll go ahead and start with that one. Yeah, please do. Oh, lost moon sisters, crescent in hair, sea underfoot, do you wander? In blue veil, in green leaf, in tattered shawl, do you wander? With gold leaf skin, with flaming hair, do you wander? On Avenue A, on Bleecker Street, do you wander? On Rampart Street, on Fillmore Street, do you wander with flower wreath with jeweled breath? Do you wander footprints shining mother of pearl behind you moonstone eyes in which the crescent moon with gloves, with hat in rags, in fur, in beads under the waning moon hair streaming in black rain wailing with stray dogs 
hissing in doorways, shadows you are that fall on the crossroads, highways, jaywalking, do you wander, spitting, do you wander, mumbling and crying, do you wander, aged and talking to yourselves with roving eyes, do you wander, hot for quick love, do you wander, weeping, you're dead. Naked you walk, swathed in long robes you walk, swaddled in death shroud you walk, backwards you walk, hungry, 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 shrieking, I hear you, singing, I hear you, cursing, I hear you, praying, I hear you, you lie with the unicorn, you lie with the cobra, you lie in the dry grass, you lie with the yeti, you flick long cocks of satyrs with your tongue, you are armed, you drive chariots, you tower over me, you are small, you cower on hillsides out of the winds, pregnant, you wander, barefoot, you wander, battered by drunk men, you wander, you kill on steel tables, you birth in black beds, fetus you tore out stiffens in snow, it rises like new moon, you moan in your sleep, digging for rams, you wander, looking for dope, you wander, playing with birds, you wander, chipping at stone, you wander, I walk the long night seeking you, I climb the sea crest seeking you. I lie on the prairie, batter at stone gates, calling your names. You are coral. You are lapis and turquoise. Your brain curls like shell. You dance on hills. Hard substance woman, you whirl. You dance on subways. You sprawl in tenements. Children lick your tits. You are the hills, the shape and color of mesa. You are the tent, the lodge of skins the hogan, the buffalo robes, the quilt, the knitted afghan. You are the cauldron and the evening star. You rise over the sea. You ride the star. I move within you, light the evening fire. I dip my hand in you and eat your flesh. You are my mirror image and my sister. You disappear like smoke on misty hills. You lead me through dream forest on horseback. Large gypsy mother, I lean my head on your back. I am you, and I must become you. I have been you, and I must become you. I am always you, and I must become you. Aya, 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 maya, ma, maya, ma. Om Star Mother Ma Om Maya Ma Ah. That's the end of that one. Mm, just amazing. Amazing. Just amazing. Just amazing. And I, you know, I, when Kimberly first read this to me, I mentioned that it made me think of. The Thunder Perfect Mind, which is a poem in the Nag Hammadi Library that just, you know, came out of nowhere. They have no sort of very little idea of where it came from, what tradition it came from. But um, but there is a similarity of that um, of that sort of like I am we are I am we are I am all of the women I am you you are me you know that same sort of of feeling it's it's mm. it's like an echo down through the ages 
this connection of mother to daughter to daughter to daughter to daughter um, that just it just blew me away. And so that's uh, a good. That's a good. Yeah, comparison. if you really if you want, I, I I I will read a couple of of lines from that. Yes, I would, yeah. please, I would love please. that. Yeah. Okay. It's a, it's a beautiful. Um, so this is from Thunder Perfect Mind. It's a longer poem, but just a few lines from it. Look at me, you who think upon me, and you hearers hear me. You who are waiting for me, take me to yourselves, and do not pursue me from your vision, and do not make your sound hate me nor your hearing. Do not be ignorant of me at any place or any time. Be on guard. Do not be ignorant of me, for I am the first and the last. I am the honored and the scorned. I am the harlot and the holy one. I am the wife and the virgin. I am the mother and the daughter. I am the members of my mother. I am the barren one and the one with many children. I am she whose marriage is multiple and I have not taken a husband. I am the midwife and she who do, does not give birth. I am the comforting of my labor pains. I am the bride and the bridegroom. It is my husband who begot me. I am the mother of my father and the sister of my husband, and he is my offspring. I am the servant of him who prepared me, and I am the Lord of my offspring. He is the one who begot me before time on a day of birth, and he is my offspring in time. I am the staff of his power in his youth, and he is the rod of my old age. I am the incomprehensible silence and the much-remembered thought. I am the voice of many sounds and the utterance of many forms. I am the utterance of my name. Why, you who hate me, do you love me and hate those who love me? For I am knowledge and ignorance. I am shame and boldness. I am unashamed. I am ashamed. I am strength and I am fear. I am war and peace. Give heed to me. Beautiful. That oh, so amazing. Yeah. So, what, which translation were you using for that? Because I think that's one of the more beautiful. Translations uh, this I've is the about. this is the translation by Anne McGuire, copyright two thousand. Uh, I say ah uh, only because it, in some of the other translators, I would suspect may have missed or softened some aspects of the feminine power in it, and this one really captures it. So. Yeah. Anne McGuire. Okay. Anne McGuire. Beautiful. Yeah. Wow. So I'm sorry, John, go ahead. Yeah, no, just saying that, you know, I, I just love this sense of, of uh, connection, you know, this echoing of, uh, in many ways, the feminine divine in the feminine eternal in many other ways. Um, the womb to womb. The womb-to-womb -womb connection down through time, and the collectivism of the of of women, and the diversity of women. You know, mm -hmm. it's like I am this and I am that. I am these opposite things, but all of it ex is experienced in some way by me. I just think that's gorgeous. <laughs> it is. It is. Well, well, it's in, so resonant. In in pulling this together, because we are coming up to the, the end uh, of our time, Kimberly, with that poem, with Under the Perfect Mind, and how it connects, and it connects this this spirit of feminine power, of feminine creativity, what, what would you like to leave our listeners with about these women in this movement and their influence, not just in the movement, but in things beyond? 
<clears throat> that's a tall order. Mostly I want their name. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want their names remembered. I want them to be known. Hope Savage, Joanne Volmer, Mary Corbett, Joan Kiger, Diane DePrima. I want their names to be known. I want their works to be read. I don't think they were just writing for a specific era and in a specific time, but I think that the work that they did has resonance and meaning to us even now as we are entering times right in the midst of times of great social tumult. Um, I want it to be known that these women were not just hangers on and bed buddies, but that they were in it. They were a part Mm. of what happened and that uh, I don't even know how to word it right. But I think that the feminine energy that they brought to this is what enabled what came next, that they took it in. And as women do, they took those seeds and they added to them and they germinated and gestated them. And they gave birth to worlds that affected us and keep affecting us today. So mostly I just want them to be known and to be remembered. And I hope people who study them fall in love with them the way I did. Well, we try that. One of the things Dawn and I talk about is just that this show, this podcast, be sort of uh, a testimony to these women who have been forgotten throughout the ages and these stories that are forgotten. So, yes, let's please say their name and let's explore more. I mean, Kimberly, I'd like to talk to you more just in the future of Shadonda as well, just about f- helping find some of these women. Hope Savage, I think, is someone really needs to be tracked down. And uh, if that would be pretty amazing. Somehow... Yeah, she's my next project. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Kimberly is uh, is a an, a researcher extraordinaire. So, Kimberly, if anyone can do it, it'll be you. <laughs> Thank yes. you. And if we can find <laughs> contact to Mary uh, Norbert, uh, we will definitely contact you and say, "Okay, we found her." And she's right, right. To talk. Or we found her, and she says, "I refuse to talk to you." Who knows? But we'll we'll see. So we'll let you know. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much, Kimberly. Oh, my God. This was amazing and inspiring Thank you. and beautiful. And I love it. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed the opportunity to talk about this. Thank you. And thank you, Dawn, for suggesting this topic and for sharing this uh, with us. So Absolutely. Once again, thank you, Sean. We make, we make the beat journey, right? The Absolutely. big Kabbalah in the, uh, in the universe, as the beats used to say. So, all right. This has been the 34th Cersei Salon. This is Make Matriarchy Great Again. We've been talking about women beat poets. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb. Thank you all for listening. I am Don Sam Alden. And take care, everyone. And blessed be.